Okay, let's go ahead and pray again as we get started and continue our worship. Our Father, we are grateful to be together. And even as we have sung and, and contemplated in our hearts, we, we are the recipients of, a, of an incredible, undying love. And a love that is not whimsical or emotional or simply wishing the best, but a love that is powerful, that is effectual, a love that is restorative, a love that is healing, a love that is perfecting, a love that seeks to flood your creation with all joy and all flourishing. And Father, we who are sharers in Jesus the Messiah are the first fruits of that. We are the living embodied truth of that. And I pray that we would be heralds of that good news, not just in the words that we speak, but in the lives that we live, in the hearts that we have, in the attitudes that we have, in the way that we meet the challenges of life, in the way that we meet the joys and the comforts of life. Father, help us to be truly a gospel people. And as we return again to this great and marvelous story that begins to be unfolded in the book of Genesis, I pray that you would help each one, not just to understand what it is that this story is telling, but to be enriched by it, to be transformed by it to be a people who actually uh, embody the glory that is in this story, even as it's found its climax in Jesus our Lord. So I pray for your blessing upon each one. I pray for your leading in my thoughts and my words in each one's hearing and cause this consideration, this time together in your word to be fruitful for each one according to his faith, according to his need. And we ask all these things, Father, with all confidence in the God who perfects, in the God whose desire will be fully realized. We offer these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you all, but as we move through the book of Genesis, hopefully you're, you're reading along week to week through the text and um, I just wanted to take a few minutes as we start today, and we'll be just considering very briefly the Isaac story. And then next week, uh, I actually want to take what I did before in one week and split it into two weeks concerning Jacob and um, the, the main events of his life. But uh, by way of introducing the Isaac story today, I just wanted to underscore again what I keep saying and hopefully is becoming more clear to us. And that's how vitally important it is to approach the scripture as a story. 
And people hear the word story and they think, oh, you know, you're talking about something that is made up or fictional or whatever. And that's not the case at all. But we have to recognize that the Bible isn't a collection of propositions, theological propositions, doctrinal propositions, moral, ethical, practical propositions. It's the unfolding account, the unfolding story of God's intent for his creation. How it is that he would accomplish that and the record of the process towards that accomplishment. And so that's how this story then has its climactic um, uh, apex in Jesus himself, in what we call the Christ event, the, the incarnation, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the enthronement uh, of Jesus the Messiah. He is the one in whom this story reaches its climax. And so as we read through this Old Testament narrative, we need to have that sense of things, that, that this is a story that is being told in the way it is because of that ultimate goal. And I mentioned before that the way the Bible tells its story is through these two components of narrative and commentary. The narrative is the telling of the story. The commentary is the interpretation of the story, the interpretation of the narrative. And that commentary comes in the form of, of uh, events that are explained to us, uh, words that God might speak, that prophets might speak. Uh, we can look at the, uh, the prophets as providing commentary to Israel concerning its place in time, its circumstance, the things that it's uh, undergoing, why they've gotten to that point, what it means, where it's going, what God is going to do. So they're just like with any story, there's the telling of the story and the interpreting of the story. And those things flow hand in hand throughout the scripture. And that's certainly the case uh, in the Genesis narrative as well. So as I say, the idea of story doesn't suggest that the biblical account is fictional, but it is stylized. It's stylized. And anytime a person tells a story there is a stylizing of that story because what determines the story and how it's told is the perspective of the storyteller and the goal that he has in telling the story, right? The perspective of the storyteller and then the goal that he has. What is the purpose that he has? So the scripture presents to us an accurate, truthful account of things, but in accordance, again, with that authorial perspective and purpose. And that's true of the individual human authors, but also of the author, capital A, the Spirit of God behind the text. The Spirit has his own perspective and his own agenda or purpose in telling the story. And that's why it's told in the way that it is. Well, what's my point in all of that? In order to have a right approach and a right understanding of the scripture, both in its parts and in its totality, that right understanding, that even that right approach, that right interaction depends on interacting with it according to the story it's trying to tell. Not the story we hope to find, not the story we think uh, we'd like to see or we believe is there, but the story it's trying to tell. 
So we have to read the scripture wherever we are in it and interpret it through the lens of the author's perspective and his intent. That's where we find the truth of the text. The truth is in us coming to see the writer's perspective and his intent. And the way that we do this is by being sensitive to the story as the writer tells it. What does it mean to be sensitive to it? Why does he tell the story that he tells? Why does he tell it the way that he does? Why does he include the things that he does? Why does he leave out other things? Why does he have the emphases that he has? Those are the kinds of clues that help us to understand what it is that he's trying to get at. And only in that way can we really arrive at the truth of the text. So as I say, and it's obvious to us, I think, God is the ultimate guiding storyteller in the scripture. He informs the story and he guides the reader by means of that commentary that he provides along the way. So these are things that are crucial to our interacting with the Bible and certainly with this long story that is the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, is this long story, and there's commentary woven into it, obviously, but it's a long extended narrative that takes us from creation to Canaan. Centered in what? The covenant of God with Abraham. That's kind of the binding central thread, but it moves us in the first five books of of the scripture, the Pentateuch, it moves us from creation all the way to the border of Canaan. So as we come to and we read these accounts in Genesis and people and places and circumstances, we have to read it in that sort of a way. God's intent in telling this story that's reflected in the human authors may be ultimately compiled by Moses himself, uh, but there's a lot of work that goes into this thing that we call the Pentateuch in terms of human authors. But God's intent was not to compile and construct a precise historical record of people and events, like a newspaper article. That wasn't his intent, but to disclose his designs for the creation, the process by which he would accomplish those designs, and his enduring faithfulness to see that realized. And that intent is what determined the form that the story takes, the form, the things again. Why is this in there? Why is this emphasized? Why is this left out? Why these people? Why these events? Even the places themselves have significance in the telling of the story. And we'll see that particularly when we get to Jacob, but we've seen it already along. So that's the proper and necessary perspective for understanding even this idea of of inspiration or the scripture's veracity, its truthfulness. It is a stylized account, not because it's untrue, but because the truth it's being, that's being communicated is presented in a way that gets at that truth. An easy example, and I think I've mentioned it before, is Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. It's a stylized genealogy. 
He's not trying to record an actual person by person all the way down the line uh, genealogy, but he partitions that genealogy according to what he's trying to communicate about who this person is. So he has 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to exile, 14 generations from exile to the Messiah. And there's a reason he does it in that way. So my point is that when we think about the inspire, inspiration of the Bible or we think about its truthfulness, it's not in terms of specific facts per se, but it's truthful in the message that it's communicating. The truth is in the message. And the message is presented in a stylized way, whether through language or the way events are constructed or emphasized to communicate that truth across. So inspiration, veracity, truthfulness, authority, all of those things pertain to the story that the text is trying to tell and the meaning that the story seeks to convey. Inspiration is not a matter of technical precision regarding language, history, science, etc., let alone what we think we find in the text. Our understanding, our conclusions, our perspective, that's not what's inspired although we often tend to feel that way. And, you know, one of the things that made me think about the, doing this introduction this way is uh, I listened to a sermon this week by someone who is uh, a pastor of one of kind of the larger megachurches in the Denver area. And he, he was emphasizing in this sermon the importance of Christians evangelizing. You know, Christians should be all about preaching the gospel, you know, uh, uh, sharing the gospel with people. And he made the comment that people often say to him, well, you know, I don't even know, I don't even know a, a single verse in the Bible. And his response was, well, that really doesn't matter. When I started sharing the gospel, I didn't know anything about the Bible either. So just pick a verse to memorize. So when you talk to people, you, you know, you have a verse to give to them and my point in bringing that up is not to be critical of him per se, but to say, if you understand the gospel as the good news that this story that God has been telling through the, the working out of this thing that we call the salvation history, if the good news, the gospel, is that God has now accomplished that purpose, that goal that he's been building the case for from the time of creation to the coming of the Messiah, how can you possibly share the good news if you know nothing about the Bible? It doesn't even make sense. But if you reduce the gospel down to a set of propositions, Jesus died for your sins, if you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die, then you don't need necessarily to tie that to the biblical text, right? You're just asserting things that this person may or may not believe is true. But if that's all it comes down to is that a sinless man named Jesus died on the cross so that you could go to heaven when you die. But that's how far we've gotten away from understanding the relationship of the scriptures and knowing the scriptures to even our testimony in the world. Not just in our words, but in the lives that we live. So when we come to the text, and, uh, and particularly even as we're working through the book of Genesis, we have to be constantly asking ourselves, 
what is the author trying to get us to see? Why does he tell this story the way he does? Why these people? Why these circumstances? What are the things he's emphasizing? What are the clues? What are the keys? So as we come today to look at the Isaac story, and I want to treat it very briefly, but, but that's kind of the lens through which I want us to be thinking about this. God covenanted with Abraham that through Abraham would be the instrumentality through which God would do this great cosmic work, not just on behalf of the human race, but on behalf of the whole creation. All of this restorative work would be through Abraham based on the covenant that God made with him. And Isaac becomes the, the point at which that covenant, that plan, that purpose of God gets carried forward. So as I say in the notes, God promised this fatherhood, this restorative work, the blessing of, of God coming to all the families of the earth through Abraham and then through his seed. And Isaac is the one in whom that seed idea first begins. He is the one through whom that promise begins to be fleshed out. But then it moves through him. And Isaac plays a relatively small role in Genesis. There are two primary things that are associated with him. The first is that he is, if you will, the baton bearer between Abraham and Jacob. Jacob is the main seed figure associated with Abraham. And one of the clues to that is that the book of Genesis gives him more space than anybody else. He's the primary character in the second half of the book of Genesis. And we'll see why that is, but his story is told with much more depth than, than Isaac's story. Isaac's is very brief. It's the passing of the baton from Abraham to Jacob. And one of the main ways in which we see the significance of Jacob is he becomes Israel. The purpose of God to make Abraham a great nation is most concerned with Jacob because he's the one through whom he becomes Israel and then his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And when we read the Jacob story, as we move forward, we have to read his story again in the light of what he becomes, what he represents. That's certainly the way the original Israelite audience would have read these stories. They would have read it through their own sense of themselves and who they were and where they fit into God's purposes. They wouldn't have read it through a 21st century American lens, right? The story was constructed for their benefit ultimately for ours, but as it pertained to, to them. So in terms of the Isaac story, I just want to deal with two pieces of it. The need for a new covenant matriarch, because if this is the movement of seed, you know, if it is descendants from Abraham, then you need a covenant matriarch and a covenant patriarch. And if you look at the way the Genesis text presents this, you see Rebecca introduced while Sarah is still alive. You say, okay, well, why does that even matter? Maybe it's just the way he told the story. Well, it begins, the, um, Rebecca is introduced having a kind of prominence within her father's genealogy. Often females aren't even mentioned in genealogies, right? 
But if you look at, let's see, where do I want to find this here? The end of 22. It says in verse 20 of chapter 22, Now it came about after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, and Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. So right off the bat, the text is, in a sense, singling out or giving a kind of spotlight on Rebekah. And then the very next thing is Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died in Kiriath Arba. So already there's the hint that perhaps this is the one who's to replace Sarah. The text has already identified Isaac clearly as the covenant heir, even before he was born, right? God made it clear that Isaac, this son would not Ishmael, Isaac would be the covenant heir. And that was even affirmed again then at Moriah after the sacrifice. But in order for there to be a covenant heir then through Isaac, there must be a new covenant matriarch. So the text introduces Rebekah in this way. Then in 2460, what you have now is the servant. Abraham sends his servant back to Mesopotamia, where Abraham was from. He says, go back to my family, go back to my household and find a wife for my son. Don't take a wife from the Canaanites. Go back to Mesopotamia, go back to my own family and find someone. So the servant does that. And in the process of that, he, through this test that he he puts before the Lord, Rebecca is identified as that one. So when she's given the choice whether she wants to go with this servant back and become Isaac's wife, she says, yes, I will do that. And as her brothers, her family send her away, this is verse 59 of chapter 24, thus they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. See, you you read that and your mind should say, I've heard that before somewhere. And you go back and you see that that's very much at the center of God's covenant promise, both to Abraham and also to Sarah. That she would become, even in the changing of her name, Sarai becomes Sarah, princess. Kings will come forth from you. You will be the mother of a royal line and they will possess the gates of their enemies. So see, when we're reading, we should be picking up on these kinds of clues. Why is this blessing even recorded? Why does it matter? The text wants you to recognize already that this person, Rebecca, is going to be the one through whom God's promises will be perpetuated. God is continuing to be faithful to his commitment, now moving to the next generation. Then you see after she comes back and after Isaac takes her for his wife, 
the text says that Isaac took her into Sarah's tent. He made her his wife. He consummated that union in Sarah's tent. Well, why does that matter? Because the text wants you to see that she is taking that place of covenant matriarch from Sarah. And then the last thing that it tells you to link her with Sarah and this principle of how God will accomplish his, his covenant promises is that like Sarah, Rebecca is barren. And the promise is then that Isaac prays and God opens her womb and she becomes pregnant. And then the Lord says she feels this struggling within her and she's told two nations are inside of you right, in your womb. There will be a struggle between these two sons. And once again, repeating that same Ishmael-Isaac idea, the older will serve the younger. There's going to be a reversing of the natural structure of primogeniture. The firstborn gets all the property, the rights, the name, right, in the ancient world. And just as that was turned over with Ishmael and Isaac, now it's going to be turned over with Jacob and Esau, but in, in an even more intense sort of way in that you could say with Ishmael, okay, well, but he was the son of the handmaid. Isaac was the son of Sarah, the covenant matriarch. So we can kind of understand that. But now you have two boys who are sons of the same father, the same mother, even the same conception. They're twins. And yet the older will serve the younger. And Paul draws on this later in Romans, right? So the only thing that distinguishes these, these boys is God's determination concerning them. And in fact, it's the turning over of the natural order, which is that the firstborn, who is Esau, should have the rights of primogeniture. So the text wants you to see these things and recognize them as a pattern that keeps being repeated. But even this theme of life out of death, life out of death. And as we see, when we begin to, to look at uh, Jacob's life, the circumstances of his life, the people of Israel very much would have read that ancestor's life and the story in the scriptures. They would have read his story in terms of their own story. In a, in a very real way, Jacob's story is a microcosm of what will be Israel's story. And through all of that Jacob's story and all of the ups and downs and the exile and the issues of his life, God remains faithful and prospers him. And that was to be a lesson to Israel as well. So Sarah's successor is shown through these clues in the text and then also through the story itself that her, her replacement is Rebecca. Rebecca is the new covenant matriarch. As for Isaac, his own unique stat status as the monogenes, the only begotten or the unique son, the uniquely begotten son. First of all, as we said, God had identified him already before he was born. And then after Moriah, God affirmed that to him as well. But in the way that he's distinguished, even within Abraham's other children, Abraham, after Sarah died, uh, took another wife, Keturah, and she bore six sons to him. 
and Abraham gave them an inheritance. He gave them property, but they didn't have a share in the covenant. He, in fact, sent them out of the land to dwell in the east. And so it was with Ishmael and his sons. God blessed Ishmael. He made him a great nation. He gave him also 12 sons, you know, 12 tribes in a sense coming out of Ishmael, but again, outside of the land, away from Isaac, away from the covenant inheritance. He also dwelt to the east. These are the kinds of clues that the text wants you to see. So even though blessing came to Ishmael and he was circumcised too, And I think that that is a pointer to the fact that one day Ishmael himself, not in his himself, but in his own descendants, they would be brought back, just as the case with Esau. Initially, covenantally, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, right? And yet, the day would come when God would say, when I raise up David's fallen tabernacle, you know, I rebuild this tabernacle and restore David's house. Then I will gather in Esau and all the nations who are called by my name. So even Ishmael's line was not ultimately beyond the restorative intent of God, even though covenantally at that time that was the case. So with Abraham's other six sons, with Ishmael, you see that they live outside the covenant land. And then one other clue that I mention here that the text points to is that the place, Be'er Lahai Roi, remember that was where Hagar had fled and God promised that he would bless her. He would bless the son that she would give birth to, Ishmael. In a sense, that kind of symbolized God's blessing towards uh, Ishmael and, and what God would give to him. And the text specifically says that Isaac went and lived in that place. So he had even taken possession of that place associated with God's blessing on Ishmael. He has displaced his brother covenantally. And again, even, you know, I want to emphasize even as, as Malachi brings it out, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. That's not God's emotion towards these two boys. He's talking about covenantal relationship. Covenantal relationship. So the text wants you to see the absolute uniqueness of Isaac. Abraham had many children, but there was the one, the one. You see also this in the relationship, uh, the, the closeness of Isaac's experiences with Abraham. If you read the story, you should keep saying, wow, that same thing happened to Isaac as happened to Abraham. Wow. Same story told a second time. And the text wants you to see that. It wants you to recognize that. So first and foremost, you see God reiterating the same covenant promises to Isaac as to Abraham. Chapter 26, verse 1, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Same story. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands and I will 
and by your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, that's the covenant promise. So God is reaffirming, reaffirming that Isaac is the one in whom this covenant is being carried forward, being perpetuated. He receives the same covenant blessings that Abraham had received. The second then involves his encounter with Abimelech in Gerar, the same sort of thing. Isaac is afraid for himself, so he tells Rebekah, tell him you're my sister, right? And the same deal happens again, where Abimelech realizes she's his wife, and he says, why did you do this? You were going to bring calamity on us. But one of the things I want to point out, and, if, and again, these are the ways in which the story is told to make a certain point. And that's the fact that you have, first of all, in uh, chapter 25, these boys, Jacob and Esau, are already grown up. The, it, 25 ends with the transferring of the birthright from Esau to Isaac, right? Or yeah, um, not Isaac, Jacob. So in 25, the, the, the sons of Rebekah are already old enough to where Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. And then in 26, there's this story about the famine, and they're down in, in um, the land of the Philistines, and they think that Rebekah is Isaac's sister. Well, if she had two teenage or whatever boys, it'd be obvious that wasn't the case. So the story is told in a non-chronological way. That's this quote from uh, Bruce Waltke, top of page two. Obviously, the story is anachronous. Anachronous means out of order, not chronological. For if Isaac and Rebekah had children, their marriage would have been apparent to the Philistines from the beginning. The narrator often arranges scenes by poetic and theological concerns rather than chronology. In other words, this isn't a newspaper account. The story is told in the way that it's told to make certain points pop out. The truth, the meaning, the truth is in the meaning, and the meaning is in the way the story is told. So this scene has been carefully placed between the deception stories of the birthright and the blessing. Right after this comes Jacob receiving the blessing from his father. The birthright in 24 or 25, the blessing in 27. And in between that is this episode uh, in Gerar. He says, God's obvious blessings to Isaac in this scene illustrate the protection and prosperity entailed in the inheritance of blessing. So in other words, what this sandwiched in context is doing is showing the absolute significance of the covenant status, how important the birthright is that Esau despised, and how important the blessing is, even though it's gained by subterfuge in chapter 27. So when we're reading, we should be noting these things, not just passing through, okay, you know, this is all interesting. I don't really care, whatever. It's irrelevant. We're Christians. We don't care about the Old Testament. The story is very, very important. When Jesus comes into the world, he says, if you knew the scriptures, you would know me. 
These are the scriptures that testify of me. Moses spoke of me, right? If you want to be disciples of Moses, Moses spoke of me. And Paul says in Galatians, you who want to, you who are zealous for God's Torah, be under law in that sense, not, you know, earning your way into heaven, but you who are zealous for God's Torah, why don't you listen to it? And then he goes on to tell the Abraham story. He says, if you really listen to the scriptures, then you would be embracing the Messiah in faith instead of making Torah an end in itself. That's what he's getting at in Galatians. So we it's really important that we read these stories properly and that we let it, it give us the clues, tell us the things that are significant. So those are the first two things that connect Isaac with Abraham as the covenant heir. The third parallel is the way God prospered and exalted Isaac, particularly in the sight of the Philistines. Just as they did with Abraham, Abimelech comes to him and says, God has made you great. We know that he has passed this covenant status. You are now God's man. So don't come against us, you know, be good to us. And then you see also Isaac restoring and taking possession of the wells that Abraham had dug in the region of Gerar, Philistine region, thus asserting his own covenant claim to the land. And that kind of comes to its head as he returns and travels to Beersheba. Remember, Beersheba was the last of Abraham's wells in the land as he moved from north to south. And Beersheba was his first actual possession within the land of Canaan. That's where he planted the tamarisk tree. See, these places are important too. It's not just, okay, he went here, he went there like, you know, somebody's travel itinerary for their road trip or something. These places are important. And we're going to see that particularly with Jacob. The places, Bethel. Mahanaim, Peniel, they're important places in the telling of the story. And Beersheba is very important. It was the significant, most significant place for Abraham. And you have uh, Isaac settling there as well. And at that place, God again affirmed to him his covenant status, and he builds an altar to the Lord. And that's where Abimelech also came out and met Isaac as he had his father, and the two men made an oath to one another. They formed a covenant. In all these ways, the text wants you to see Isaac is the guy. But already it's moving very quickly to the passing of the baton to Jacob. So just by way of some summary conclusions then in the Isaac story, and there's a lot more that could be said, but, but we want to say, why is the story told in the way it is? What are the things it wants us to understand? What, what is the case it's building what are its emphases? And I think these are some of those things uh, by way of conclusion. The Isaac story reinforces God's prerogative and faithfulness in perpetuating the covenant, life out of death, the choice of Isaac, Isaac, not Ishmael, Isaac, not the sons of Keturah, the preservation of Isaac, the prospering of Isaac as God had done with Abraham. Isaac's life as covenant heir was a matter of divine election and power. God chose Isaac to be the one in whom the covenant would be perpetuated. For his part, Isaac was very similar to Abraham in that he too proved unfaithful to the covenant. 
the Isaac story shows the same God with the same faithfulness and the same sort of human party to the covenant who is unbelieving and unfaithful and fearful and doubting. And that same pattern will be also manifested in Jacob's life. And we'll see that. Perhaps in the most climactic way at Mahanaim, where he wrestles with God and his name is changed to Israel. From that point forward, the people of Israel would always understand themselves in terms of their own name. We are Israel. And it's, a, it's an idea and a principle more than it, a name. It's not like, you know, the last name Smith, Jones, whatever. It identifies who they are in relation to their God. And we'll see that. So the same patterns will be repeated also in Jacob's life. Indicated at the outset by the birth narrative, the elder will serve the younger. God, by his own determination for his own reasons, upsets the principle of primogeniture. And even though that's realized in time and space through deception and subterfuge and unbelief and selfishness and carnality, nonetheless, God's purposes stand. The elder would serve the younger. So the text wants us to see that God's promises to Abraham ultimately depended upon him for their fulfillment. Even the great Isaac event on Mount Moriah is Yahweh will provide, right? Jehovah Jireh. The Lord would provide all that was necessary. So the human parties to the covenant did nothing to establish it or secure its continuance. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees as a pagan, his family was pagan. There was no knowledge of God in any sense with any particular individual that the text shows, you know, from the time of Noah on. God picks a man whose family are idolaters and he says, you will be my man. Quite the opposite. The unfaithfulness of these human parties is in every situation threatening the covenant. And the people of Israel to whom these texts were written would have very much seen themselves in that light. Israel's whole history was a God who is faithful in the context of their unfaithfulness. Think of how God, even through Jeremiah, spoke of a renewed covenant. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I brought them out of the house of Israel. For they did not continue in my covenant, though I was a husband to them. The indictment was always, you have no one to blame but yourself. This isn't me, this is you. Israel is an incorrigible son. And that this dynamic of divine faithfulness and, and failure of the human parties to the covenant becomes a hugely important Christological truth down the road, as we'll see. Because that sets up this dynamic, this quandary of, how can God fulfill his promise to Abraham if the Abra or through to and through Abraham if the Abrahamic people are incapable of fulfilling their obligation under the covenant? How can God keep his word and his faithfulness to Abraham when Israel, the Abrahamic people, cannot be the Abrahamic people? And the way that the prophets end up answering that is that God himself by his own power, his own will, 
will bring out of Israel an Israelite who will be Israel in truth, a singular Abrahamic seed. So the story is, is building towards this, this revelation that comes. And that's the sense in which Jesus can say, if you knew the scriptures, you would recognize me. It's not four or five proof texts in the Old Testament that seem to speak of a, of a savior or whatever. It's what Paul meant when he said, Christ was crucified and raised according to the scriptures. He's not pointing to a proof text. He's saying the story, the scriptures, the Israelite scriptures tell this story that is realized in the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Messiah. So the patriarchs' lives then anticipated Israel's perpetual failure under the covenant, which would culminate with Yahweh's rejection of Israel and the nation's desolation and exile, but not as the last word. That's the way the prophets speak. The covenant Lord would remain faithful. His intent for his creation bound up in Abraham and his seed by covenant oath would yet be fulfilled. And so Israel's scriptures, which record Israel's history, are the salvation history, the history of God's saving work in the world. They show that God's intent wasn't to save men's souls per se, but to banish the curse and its alienation and gather his creation to himself so as to become all in all. His design is that his creation should become sacred space. The bringing together of God's realm in the created realm, that God would be all in all. This is what you see in Revelation 21 and 22, right? It's very much an earthly hope. It's a creational hope. The whole creation by God's design was to become sacred space, his dwelling place. And that would come through Abraham's seed. And as that seed is himself God's dwelling, then the creation would attain its destiny by being summed up in him. This is the way Paul explains all of this. And that's why I even mentioned that thing earlier, you know, the absurdity of saying, go out and share the gospel, even though you know nothing about the Bible. How can you possibly do that? It doesn't make even the least bit of sense. The only way it conceivably makes sense is if you're simply sharing four spiritual laws that are abstracted from any kind of text or, you know, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, but God sent Jesus, Jesus died for you. And people can believe those facts or not, but, but that's not the good news that, of the story that the Bible tells. When Jesus went around proclaiming the good news of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, it was this story, right? And I don't want to bang on this drum constantly, but I think this is so important and it's, it's becoming more and more lost in the church. People don't know the story anymore. All they know is some abstract, sinless figure, God in human flesh that died on a cross so they can go to heaven. And by reducing it and abstracting it in that way, you actually even lose the truth of it at some level. So next time, like I said, um, the sermon from before from for next time on Jacob uh, I'm going to split that into two weeks so we can deal with those pieces a little bit uh, more individually but 
I'll give you that link this week. So uh, let's go ahead and, and close in prayer. And then we can have some discussion time. Father, I, I do pray that you would help each one of us with these things. It's, it, it is, as C.S. Lewis said, we're, we're content to play in mud puddles when you have granted to us a holiday by the sea. These truths of your purpose, your wisdom, your love, your glory, your accomplishment in Jesus our Lord, is those things are so much more grand, so much more sweeping and glorious, even indescribable, than we are often content to know. Very often our understanding of your purposes and our relationship with you is nothing more than, than seeking some sort of fire insurance and, and wanting to know that things will be well for us when we leave this life. And Father, we impoverish the truth, and in that way, we impoverish your Son. We impoverish the gospel. We impoverish even our understanding of ourselves, what it is to be sharers in Christ, what it is to see his glory reflected in our own faces with an ascending glory. As by your spirit, we are transformed from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus, our Lord. It impoverishes our sense of our inheritance, what it is that you purpose, not just for us individually, but for the human race, for the creation as a whole. It certainly impoverishes our witness and our sense of responsibility, our stewardship of our lives in this world, what it means even to be proclaimers of the Lordship of Christ, to speak truth to power. In all these things, Father, I pray that you would help us to grow. I pray that you would give us hearts and a sense of urgency and unction, that we would be a people who are zealous to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head, and help us to be stewards of one another, ministers of these things to one another, to encourage and exhort, spur one another on in the love and the works of new creation that you have appointed for us. Bless us in our continued worship, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.